welcome uh, to his and her story podcast. Once again, I'm Mr. White. I'm Miss Prickett. Yeah, today we are coming at you from a, uh, well, actually from a Zoom meeting. We're trying some new things to make the um, podcast better. To yeah. Sound better. Always looking to be, make it better. Because this isn't going to stop just with the school year, right, wasn't Mr. Weish? That, that's true. Um, I, for my classes, I do like kind of a socialized announcements on a Monday where it's just, since my <clears throat> Google Meets have kind of died off, that's oh, just a way so they can see, so you guys can see me. Um, but I told them yesterday, I said, well, you know, I bought some uh, equipment. Um, we're going to start recording, I guess, try to do one planning period like every week every other week yep <clears throat> so we hope you guys keep listening those of you that are listening and <laughs> hopefully as, we'll get even better as it as it goes and we'll probably interact more when we're in person and stuff like that i feel like yeah you know i was driving around yesterday uh not aimlessly um <laughs> but i was driving i've done that <laughs> and i said to myself um i was like man you know, how can we do this? Maybe what we can do is, um, well, me being the social studies chair and being a, um, oh, I'm sorry, there's a baby in the background. If you can hear that's my, <laughs> that is my son. So let me go close my door. All right, my bad guys. But uh, well, anyways, like I, maybe the social studies, um, chair uh maybe i can direct some of the social studies teachers the other ones to maybe we have guest spots oh yeah that's uh, cool i think it could maybe be throw in some english teachers every now and then i'm sure yeah, they they'd have a little little info maybe yeah uh yeah and <laughs> you know i, I know i know I've, i know miss nichols wouldn't mind jumping in as well which would be kind of cool um but yeah. i thought you know way maybe we could introduce new new teachers and stuff like that it could be kind of cool um and it gives a little more participation. So, and anything we can do to up our listenership, I guess is the word. <laughs> All right. Before we get started, remember to hit, uh, to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, um, to give us those five stars because that's what we need because we are super needy people. <laughs> yep. And I like to stroke my ego any chance I get. So five stars <laughs> all the way guys. All um, right. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, it is my turn today. So I'm going to begin with just a short little preview. And we're mostly, well, we are going to be looking at the continent of Africa today. And you guys have heard of this person before, but my guess would be that when we taught this back in the fall, it was the first time you heard of this person, most likely. And so I just thought it would maybe be a good, you know, um, refresher before I get into my main topic for the day. So I just wanted to look briefly back at a person who is considered the richest person in our, to be one of the richest people to have ever lived. Mm -hmm. And Hopefully you guys can guess who this is without me having to um, really say it, but it is Mansa Musa. So Mansa Musa, as a reminder, he 
takes over the kingdom of Mali, which is in West Africa. So he's going to have a lot of um, territory in West Africa in the 1300s. And so if you remember the 1300s in Europe and some other places at that time were in kind of the end of the Middle Ages, things like the plague and crusades and um, events like that were happening in those areas. And there was a lot of civil war going on. But in the meantime, in West Africa, um, really kind of the economy and the, um, I guess, land in general was thriving. So Mansa Musa takes over and um, he has a lot of wealth, mostly because of the salt and the gold that are major resources in um, Africa, as you guys have seen. So. Mansa Musa, remember, he goes, really, he is kind of considered um, one of the main figures for, quote-unquote, I guess, putting Africa on the map. Um, he takes that journey, a um, Hajj, to um, Mecca. Remember, he is, um, believes in Islam, and so one of the five pillars of Islam is to take this pilgrimage and remember one of the things we looked at is that he takes this incredible journey really through um egypt and you know through different countries all throughout africa and it ends up being i think about four thousand miles right mr Weish? oh it's long yeah really really long journey i mean think about going four thousand miles and of course he does not have anything like a car or anything like that so instead of a car he takes his massive caravan and this caravan like if you were to look out you couldn't even see really the end of it it's so long he takes all these people all these camels all of this gold along the journey and he kind of gives some of the stuff out as he's going and um he makes it to mecca he kind of starts telling people about molly and um, it ends up taking about a year for this journey in total. Um, and by the end of it, really people all over, um, the Eastern part of the world know about the Mali empire now. So when he comes back, remember Timbuktu is kind of one of the major trading centers over in West Africa. And he really has a lot there as far as, um, bringing universities that are going to teach about um, the Islamic faith and really just spreading um, the Islamic faith in general is a big part of his story as well. But I really just wanted to mention Mansa Musa because one, it's a character that many people, I would guess, have not really heard of, um, yet is one of the wealthiest figures to have ever lived. And two, he is a good example, I think, just of how rich in resources the West African Kingdom and really Africa in general is. They have tons and tons of resources. And that kind of brings me to our topic today, which really begins with imperialism. Um, and we looked at imperialism right before the, um, you know, all this started. And if you remember imperialism, um, one of the big aspects of it was the scramble for Africa. You guys did your continent scramble and you kind of saw how the Europeans, the U.S. Um, 
literally just divided Africa up. Um, if you remember those political cartoons where it was kind of like Africa was a piece of cake. Africa had no representatives at these meetings like the Berlin Conference where all this was discussed. And um, basically all of Africa, with the exception of um, Ethiopia and Liberia, is that right? Yes. Well, it was Liberia because the U.S. and Ethiopia, well, because they could, they handled themselves. And they were also Christian too, which makes a big difference because it's tough to go say, hey, guess what? I'm doing this because I'm bringing these people closer to God because I'm bringing them Christianity when they're actually Christian and Ethiopians were always Christian and they're biblical. Okay. Um, so all of this is happening kind of at this point, we're in the late 1800s. So really imperialism begins in like the 1880s, you could say around then. Um, and what I really wanted to focus on today is the Women's War of 1929. And the Women's War of 1929 takes place in Nigeria, which is one of the countries in West Africa. Um, it is right along the Gulf of Guinea, so kind of on along the coast of Africa. And um, before I get to the actual war itself, I wanted to give a little bit of context. So basically what's happening with this imperialism. So Nigeria, for the most part, is going to be um, imperialized by the British. So as you guys saw, the British take a lot of land in Africa, um, really have kind of the most as far as, I guess, land. Um, and so what happens really, sorry, I'm going to reference my notes a little bit. Um, in kind of 1914, I believe was the date. So the early 1900s, this British Lord, um, basically decides to start having what's called um, warrant chiefs in Nigeria. So what the British are kind of trying to do is they're trying to set up this indirect sort of rule where they're not ruling directly um, by, you know, being in these local villages in Nigeria and carrying out the policies, but instead they're basically going to get these people um, from the population to be warrant chiefs and kind of do the ruling for them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, they start to try to influence kind of the economy in Nigeria. And if you're wondering, Nigeria, one of the major things that Nigeria has is oil. And we're going to talk a lot about um, palm oil specifically with this part of um, Nigeria. So one of the things that um, the British start doing kind of later, a little later on. So it, it kind of goes from the warrant chiefs are not overly oppressive, I guess you could say, um, to over time becoming a little bit more and more oppressive, um, again, because they're getting their direction and their guidelines from the British Empire. And so this all kind of comes to a front in 1927 when the British try to start doing um, direct taxation. Okay, so um, there's a revolt initially in 1927, 
1927 over this direct um, taxa taxation. Sorry, and um, what the British does to try to curb this revolt at the time is basically use propaganda. We've talked a lot about propaganda, trying to persuade people um, that you know the policies that you're implementing are going to be good for them, basically. And so they start using this propaganda and they start kind of promising that the Nigerian um, economy and um, just in general that they're going to start building more schools and more infrastructure and that this is going to be a good thing ultimately for the people in Nigeria. It's kind of how they're, the warrant chiefs are trying to sell this. Okay. And so the revolt kind of initially dies down and um, yeah, but one thing we need to consider is that um, 1927 and kind of the late 1920s is right around the same time that the Great Depression begins, which as you guys just looked at, it begins really in 1929. But as you hopefully realize through our lessons on the Great Depression, this was not just an isolated event that impacted the United States. This really impacted um, kind of all throughout the world. And so at the time in Nigeria, they're kind of having this crisis with the palm oil. And so going back to this palm oil, why it's so important to the economy, especially for the women in Nigeria, is because a big responsibility these women had was to go to the markets um, and to trade these goods and basically try to kind of supply food throughout the regions in Nigeria. And the palm oil was a big um, selling point. So they made a lot of money off of this palm, palm, palm oil, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in kind of around when this Great Depression is happening worldwide, there is a crisis, the kind of price of the palm oil starts to um, drop. And so that is going to factor into why there is this revolt um, by the Nigerian woman in 1929. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of context um, mm -hmm. and we can get into the actual war itself now. So what happens, and one thing I wanted to point out, um, by the way, I got most of my sources here from um, JSTOR. There was a couple articles on JSTOR. Um, one is called Dance in the Woman's War. And one was called You're Demanding Tax from the Dead. And then I also got a little bit of information actually from Stanford Education Group because they have a little lesson on this. So, all right. Um, so, in 1929, and so this is kind of an interesting part of the women's war is that really it all started over what seems to be kind of this misunderstanding between the British government and the women in Nigeria. So, um, what happens is a lady named, I did look up how to pronounce this, so I'm going to really try, but um, her name is Nwan Uru, and um, she is one of the local ladies in this village called the Okola, all right? And the Okola is where a group called the Igbo um, live. And 
this is one of many ethnic groups in Nigeria. Um, I wasn't able to find how many ethnic groups there are uh, there were during this time, but today alone there's about 250. So there's a lot of different ethnic groups in Nigeria, but um, oh. oh sorry, but <laughs> one of the largest is the Igbo, who make up about 15% of the population. So. The Igbo live um, in kind of the, the southern part of Nigeria, and that's important because one thing I meant to mention earlier is that the northern part of Nigeria is, their government is kind of more centralized, and because of that, um, well, not because of that, but they also, a lot of their laws are based on um, Islam, and when I was kind of looking that up, it me means that they were in some ways a little more open to this policy of taxation in general. Um, is that correct, Mr. Wesh? Yeah, well, uh, in Islam, well, when the Islamic empires came out, they would only tax non-Muslims. You could be, well, it's religious tolerance, and then at the same time, so they are open to taxation because part, one of your pillars is tithing, is, is giving to the, you know, giving to others, Usually it's giving yeah. to the poor, but I guess in this way you could sell it as giving to the government. Yeah. The so. government providing you with schools and all these things that they, that you're, uh, what are they called? The, um, who are the leaders in the groups? The warrant chiefs. The warrant chiefs have been trying to sell them on that, right? Yeah. That's all the good yeah. stuff that's going to happen. Yeah. So um, that being said, the North is a little bit more open to some of these policies whereas the South is really not. And the South is a more decentralized government. Um, and they're already really kind of frustrated with the warrant chiefs and then this taxation kind of pushes them over the edge. And so what happens in, at the beginning, as I was saying, um, is Norm Wanruwu and Emma Ruwu um, are two of the key figures. And so um, what happens is she basically is just out in kind of her village on her own little plot of land. And what happens is this guy who has been sent by the warrant chiefs comes to, they've, they've started to kind of um, collect tax information. So in 1928, the, they had only been taxing the men in this, uh, in, um, this society. In 1929, the warrant chiefs and the British kind of decide they want to get some more information. It's kind of like a census that we do today, more information to know um, just kind of about the population and um, to be able to just collect, collect tax information in general. And so, what um, Wanru thinks about this basically is that it means the women are now going to be taxed. And remember what I said earlier with the palm oils, they've already had a crisis and um, why she kind of immediately fears this is because it would really impact their means of life. If they had to pay another tax, um, she feared and the other women as the, the new spreads feared that they would not be able to pay 
um, the tax on top of kind of their other responsibilities. So what happens basically is she goes back and um, kind of tells the other women in the village. And an another important thing is that the women in the society um, really have a pretty good network of communication because as I said, they are really in charge of kind of the marketplaces and going into the marketplaces and communicating there. And because of that, there is a lot of interconnection between some of the villages in this southern part of Nigeria. And so word kind of spreads quickly. And what happens specifically that first day in the Kola village is um, a kind of boycott type of protest. They call it sitting. And when I was reading that source about, um, that was titled Dance in the Women's War, I was reading kind of about um, this form of protest that the women had because one important thing culturally to keep in mind is that in Nigeria at this time, the most of the political decisions and things like that were made more by the men, religious decisions, that kind of thing. Um, but this dance, they're called dance plays. Mm. I was reading about it and it seems to be one of the major ways that women still kind of influence politics in a way, if um, that makes sense. So some of the things I was reading basically um, like, this is a direct quote about the dance plays, but it basically said that um, the performance can also guard against the misuse of power and produce social change without violence. All right. So this is kind of what they're trying to do with these dance plays. So basically what they do that night is they surround um, the house of the warrant chief, whose name is Okogo, and they carry out this dance play, which basically is them, um, dancing and kind of um, singing about how they do not want to be taxed and how they feel like it is unfair and how they've heard this rumor that they're going to be taxed. So this is their way kind of of getting um, their point of view across. And it um, also was interesting. I was kind of looking into like the British knew about these dance plays as well. And they actually, back in the early 1900s, like I think 1901 or 1902, they issued this proclamation basically that these dance plays would be regulated and some of them would have to have a license to do it, which I don't think they had a license to do this one. But um, anyways, so what happens from here is things kind of escalate. Basically, um, a guy named John Cook, who is British, and he's one of the guys influencing kind of the warrant chiefs. Mm -hmm. And he, at this point, is trying to convince the women that this has been a misunderstanding and that they are not going to be taxed. And so this is kind of an interesting thing of, um, you know, most historians, most things I looked at seem to think that this really was just a misunderstanding and that um, they maybe were not going to be taxed. Hmm. But um, you know, I think that's also somewhat hard to know because it could be that they just backtracked on it. I'm not, you know, entirely sure. There are definitely some different points of view on this misunderstanding and, um, whether it really was a misunderstanding or whether it was going to actually occur. 
So anyway, so he's trying to convince them that it's not going to happen. Um, but the women do not believe him. And I think, you know, to some degree, considering the British has come in and, you know, taken over and implemented these warrant chiefs and really imposed kind of their will, you could say, on the people in Nigeria that you can't really, whether it was going to happen or not, you can't, I don't think, discount the Nigerian women thinking that it was a, a, a strong possibility. So anyways, um, what ends up happening from here, there's more protests. They do turn somewhat violent. Um, so I was reading about it. It spreads to kind of other villages. And, um, well, one second, sorry. So yeah, so it spreads to another village called Abba and to the British, this event is actually known as the Abba riots. Mm -hmm. And this, at this point, it's been going on for a couple of weeks in total. This event is really only about a month that lasts from November to December. And at this point though, when they get to Abba, they have about 10,000 women who are involved with this. So clearly, um, you know, that's a lot of people in a pretty short period of time who have rallied together to protest against the British and what they kind of do. They're basically going specifically for the courts where uh -huh. um, these warrant chiefs and where the British were ruling from. And I think in total, they end up attacking about 16 courts throughout Southern Nigeria. And some of them are burned to the ground. And Again, their main purpose is really the, the government itself. They did a little bit of looting of like European stores, but that really wasn't the main purpose at all. It was more specifically um, going after these, these governments that had been set up throughout Nigeria. And so um, some other just interesting things, like one of the ways that the women signaled that um, their was kind of a call for help or there was trouble was actually by passing a palm leaf, which is a symbol to the um, people in Nigeria as um, a symbol of calling for help basically. So that was one of the things um, I kind of found while researching. Um, and yeah, I think that is about it. It did end up ending in towards the end of December and there wasn't, you know, really a, big change in Nigeria after this, I guess you could say. And so, you know, when I was thinking about doing this, I was like, you know, um, there isn't really this profound change that comes after, but I was just thinking about it. I was like, you know, a lot of these events that do end up causing big change, there's little things that have to happen before that. Right. So this to me is one of those more little things there's going to be more revolts against the, against the British um, government as, you know, things build up to World War II. In 1933, there's another big revolt. That one would also involve men as well. But, you know, I think, you know, sometimes these little events can really um, impact things in the long run. And so um, it was a story that I'd heard in one of my classes in college and just you know, um, kind of came across it as I was thinking about what to do for this next one. And yeah, just 
think it's a good example of one of the kind of earlier resistance to colonial rule and you know the British really up well up into the end of the 1900s still had influence over parts of um, Africa and other countries too not I'm not saying this was all just the British you guys know that you know a lot of these Western countries including the US and other areas was involved with imperialism so yeah, we might have been late to the game, but we certainly dove straight in. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Uh, something I did not know, no knowledge about. Um, and something that we, that we, I guess we forgot in the beginning um, to do our little kind of little history snippet. I think you did yours on, um, on Mansa Musa. Oh yeah, you have one? Sorry. Have one. I just dove right in. No, no, no. Hey, hey, I get it. I mean, you want to roll and you, you had it, you had it going. Um, but for me today, uh, it's tough to follow something so cool. So I decided to, I knew Miss Pregnant was going to bring it today. So I had to, uh, I had to think of something kind of offbeat to do. And, um, I decided to talk about weird or even stupid deaths from like leaders in history. Now, there are a lot. Uh, if you were in my class, you heard, I know for a fact, because I taught it, you heard about um, the stupid death of Pythagoras, who <laughs> wouldn't, who couldn't get escape from a mob, even though he was an Olympian, couldn't escape from a mob because he ran to a bean field and couldn't touch beans because of the religion that he created. So he got beaten to death. Not a great way to die. But I have a couple others that um, I kind of wanted to talk about that I thought were, some were humorous, some were gruesome, but they're all kind of dumb ways to die. So our first one, I'm going to talk about James II. He rules, ruled Scotland from 1437 to 1460. He was really, really big into using artillery. Uh, he, he liked to shoot it against uh, rebellious Scots and also the English that came in to try to occupy parts of Scotland. So one day he is laying siege and that means he's just kind of parked outside of a castle uh, trying to starve them out. And this castle is held by the British. So one of his cannons because he liked to be close to the action, explodes and sends metal everywhere. And some of the accounts say that, well, he did die because of this. Some of the accounts say that some of the metal grazed his thigh, injured him somewhere. Uh, it either got infected or it hit an artery and he bled out or died a couple days later from infection because, you know, they didn't have antibiotics or anything like that. Uh, let's see. Ooh, yes. Uh, there was a um, Roman usurper named Johannes. Uh, he was a senior civil servant during in the Roman Empire at one of the many times of instability. So he briefly elevated himself to the emperor of Western Rome, but he was finally captured by elements of the Eastern Empire, which we know as the Byzantine Empire, and his right hand was cut off. And he was strapped to a donkey. <laughs> he was then paraded around uh, Constantinople or Byzantium and mocked. He was finally put out of his misery by being beheaded, and they actually uh, minted coins 
with his likeness of it sitting on a donkey. So a little insult to the injury. We're going to go back to Britain. Uh, we have Henry I. He was one of the longest serving uh, kings of England from 1100 to 1135. The longest serving is 35 years. He came, uh, his, he didn't die from war or anything like that. He wasn't murdered like a lot of kings, but he got food poisoning. Specifically, he ate too many lampreys, which are a type of eel and are super gross if you look them up. Once again, it's lamprey. Uh, it was a delicacy at the time, but he ate too many and got sick and died. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Uh, Pope Paul II. This oh, is legend. So this isn't <laughs> truly factual. It could be. We don't know. But legend has it that in 1471, Pope Paul II died. And he, his death occurred to excess, his excessive eating habits. Every picture that you see of Pope Paul II, so look him up, he looks super fat, like real fat. <laughs> um, so, because he had this excessive eating habit. Specifically, <laughs> his death was brought on by eating two huge melons. Um, which is, there are other ways that are rumored that he died, which are a lot less school friendly that I won't say, but we're going to go with the fact that he ate two gigantic melons and died <laughs> either by choking or something like that. <laughs> another, I'm trying another, not to laugh. Sorry. <laughs> it, I mean, it's ridiculous. Another king, this time in Hungary, uh, his name was King Bella. So he was fighting the majority of his life to, to become king. And finally, he got to be king in 1060 because his brother had led a rebellion. And now, you know, he beat his brother. He's the winner. He's now going to go take a seat on the throne. But it didn't last long because his wooden throne, when he sat on it, collapsed. And he died from his injuries at the collapsing throne. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, oh, another, I got another, uh, two more left. I got another rumor, something that might not have happened, but it's legend has it. It's an emperor named Valerian. So Emperor v Valerian ruled from 253 to 260. And he was the first Roman emperor who was taken prisoner. So he was taken prisoner by the Persians. Uh, at the time, the Romans were expanding their empire, and this is the this Persian Empire is the is a precursor to. It, it was one of the first great sorry, one of the first great empires to fight against Rome, other than like Carthage. Persia had been you know smacked around since Alexander the Great. Um, they were obviously really big during the Greek uh, during the ancient Greek time, but Alexander the Great kind of put that to rest, and now they finally gained power. So, and these guys ended up fighting with the uh, Romans and were one of the main enemies. So the emperor of Persia takes Valerian, holds him capital, uh, or, or, sorry, captive for several years, and there is a lot of rumored deaths from him, so I'm gonna give you the most ridiculous. So one is that Valerian was taken, was killed when uh, molten gold was poured down his throat. 
Oof. Um, there are other less nice ways that he was supposedly murdered. And then our, oh God. Oh, I completely forgot about this one. I'm sorry. Uh, there's a Greek legislator named Draco. This is uh, in Athens. So there is a tradition in Athens that Athenians that are eager to honor a lawgiver, like somebody who, who makes a great law and it gets approved, that, Athen- that they would throw their cloaks on him. <laughs> is weird, but you know, it's cultural. So what do I know? So Draco was responsible for the first written constitution of Athens. He codified the laws. And until then, uh, that had only been, you know, talked about because we talked about once you have it written down, it's a big deal. Like now it's, it's legit. It's usually written in stones, literally. But unfortunately for Draco, his, uh, his laws were very harsh and very biased towards the wealthy landowners. Actually, the word, if you ever hear the word draconian, it was coined from his name, Draco. Very cool. The word that you guys know, meaning ruthless, rough, hard. Uh, so, but he was also, but even though this happened, they still celebrated him and threw cloaks at him. Now his death occurs because they threw too many cloaks on him and he suffocated. Oh. Yeah. Dang. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a little ridiculous. Um, let's see. Oh, where was the... I'm not going to read about the... Uh, I wrote down a bunch. Um, the Blood Eagle. We're not going to do that one. That one's pretty uh, ridiculous. There is a emperor... Um, th- sorry, there is Sigurd the Mighty. So Sigurd the Mighty is a, the second Viking Earl of Orkney, which is in Scotland and led the Viking conquest of what is now Northern Scotland, because that's where Orkney is. Bizarrely, uh, Orkney is also an island. Bizarrely, he was killed by a severed head of one of his enemies. I can't pronounce this um, Gaelic name. It's male, Brigitte, Brigitte, whatever. So he had slain this guy in arranged combat. What he did is, Sigurd uh, agreed to meet with Maeo, or however you say his name, and they were each going to bring 40 men, and they were going to have ritual combat instead of their armies fighting. But Sigurd, uh, (laughs) what he did is he showed up with 80 men instead of 40 and slaughtered all the Scots. So he wanted to make, because he wanted to make the Scottish leader an example. So what he did is he strapped Maeo's head to his saddle as a trophy. And so as he rode around, everybody could see, look, this yeah. is what I did. But as he rode, Ma'el apparently had really distinctive, big buck teeth. And he <laughs> raised Sigurd's leg and opened a wound. The gash in his leg became infected. And he ended up dying from blood poisoning. So, you know. That's why you should be humble. Yeah, be <laughs> humble, guys. Um, <laughs> You don't want to die like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Is there one more? Oh, I'm not going to do the head with the soccer ball. There's a bunch of these, uh, a bunch of imp- imp- funny emperor deaths because there were a lot of emperors at a certain times. Um, oh, yeah. So here's one. The final one I'm going to do is a guy who gets his just desserts. Uh, uh, Roman Emperor Caracalla. 
So this guy lived uh, or reigned from 211 to 217, not very long. He didn't make very many friends because he had radical proposals to turn all free men in the Roman Empire into citizens for the purpose of taxing them. Now, most, most of you would be like, oh, great. He wants to make everybody citizens. No, he just wants to do it so he can really tax you. So after, so he killed his brother. Then he devalued Roman currency. Uh, he also made enemies of many of his officials that worked with him. So one time he was traveling the empire, because a lot of Roman empires, they traveled the empire to, you know, show the glory of Rome and to survey their domain. It also is a good way of keeping um, people in check, knowing that Roman emperor could show up at any time. But he gets murdered while he was um, peeing on the roadside. So somebody came up, stabbed him, and then dumped him in said ditch and left him to rot. Not great considering he was considered a god, right? No. Nope. All right. Uh, there are plenty of funny history deaths. Um, lots to talk about, and maybe I'll give you one next time. Um, <laughs> some other funny ones. Uh, the reason I decided to do this is there is a really funny... You guys ever watched um, Horrible History, which is a British show? Yes, that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> you can look at it on, um, you can see it on YouTube, I know, but Horrible History has a hilarious um, little segment that's, that's, it's always like five minutes. It's like, is it called Stupid Deaths or something like, it's something like that. It's called like Stupid Deaths and they make fun of people that, one of them, they make fun of Pythagoras. They make fun of a lot of, you know, just ridiculous deaths from history and so I kind of based mine off that, which I thought was funny. Um, well, I guess that is it. I, this might have been a long episode. I can't tell. Yeah, it's called Stupid Deaths. I just looked it up. Stupid Deaths. There you go. I can't tell how long this has been going on. Yeah. Because it doesn't give me the thing. Hopefully this turns out better, sounds better, because I think it does. It sounds pretty good. Um, it definitely sounds better when we're recording. Yeah. Any preview on what you're doing next, Mr. Yeah, Weiss? Yeah. Okay. So next time. I'm going to do something called the Sengoku Jidai. It is, um, yes, it is uh, Japanese, obviously, well, and it's kind of a warring states period uh, at the point, just to give a little preview, Japan is divided up into a lot of different kingdoms. There is, uh, there is kind of the shogun, but not really. And this kind of brings about, and there's samurai everywhere, but there's a lot of little kingdoms and they're all going to eventually come together under the Tokugawa shogunate, which ended up ruling until the Meiji Restoration, um, which was the beginning of J Japanese imperialism. So until like the 1800s. So it's this establishment of that, and there's a lot of really cool characters, a lot of wild things going on because it's tons of little kingdoms, all different families ruling and just you know smacking each other around. And I just always found it. <laughs> Um, those of you out there that watch anime, uh, you will recognize some of the names because the Japanese love to rehash this history in inventive new ways um, in animation. I guess that's all we have for today. Awesome. That sounds good. We haven't done much on that uh, time period either, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't really, I mean, we briefly talked about Japan, talked about, you know, feudalism, but we're going to really do more of a deep dive into feudalism next time. And hopefully... Yeah. I'm, I'm all right so hopefully next friday or hopefully this friday we can do that if possible yeah hopefully we'll get back on track guys it's 
I mean, we would have done it earlier, but today, today was my fault. Cause, um, as Mr. Weiss said last time, moving, <laughs> moving took a little bit out of me <laughs> oh, <laughs> was yeah. exhausting. And so I'm sorry. I uh, was a little late on this one, but we'll get back on track. Hopefully. No, no, no worries. I didn't finish our website. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> so True. The dramatic persona one day this week, you're going to hit refresh and boom, it's going to be up there and you can enjoy it. Right? <laughs> hey, you can at least see the pictures. Go research yourself. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, well, again, uh, we hope you guys are happy, healthy. Um, your families are doing well. You're having, well, uh, not, not a good time because you miss us, obviously. Um, but yeah, obviously. <laughs> are doing well. And that's, you know, really all we can hope for. Yep. All right. Give us uh, a rate us on Apple podcast, drop a review. Shout out to Maggie Tipton, who, um, who gave us our first review. It's very nice. Thank you, Maggie. Hopefully you listened all the way to the end. So you got your shout out. Um, <laughs> I guess that's it for you. Uh, do you have anything else, Ms. Cricket? I don't think so. It's kind of going in and out for me, so. Oh, no. Okay. Well, I don't know okay. why. We might should go ahead and. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then, and now this should be easier because we can kind of direct. Uh, yeah. All right. So it's not his story. It's not her story. It's. It's our story. Much better. All right, guys. You have a great one. Bye. Bye. <laughs>